Vulcans do not condone the meaningless death of any being. Spock's death is meaningless. If it is only to create a giant version of himself. It is not just a duplicate. He will be the beginning of a master race. Bridge to all decks. Welcome aboard a giant episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I am giant Steve Morris. <laughs> the infinite Morris, if you will. The infinite Morris here to dive deep into the infinite Vulcan. We are covering the animated series on Enterprise Incidents. And I got to say, we are now covering our seventh episode of the animated series. And once again... I am impressed by the overall quality of the animated series. I don't have the incredible knowledge of the animated series like I do with the original series. And for many years, I just never gave a lot of thought to the animated series. But now that we're just dissecting it and scrutinizing it on the same level that we did with all 80 episodes of the original series, I'm really impressed by how well these animated episodes actually hold up. What did you think of the Infinite Vulcan? It's funny because we were just talking off mic about the difference between the original series where even the episodes that I hadn't seen a ton, I still knew really well. And the ones I'd seen a ton, I had memorized going to this where I've seen it before, but it's most almost like watching it for the first time. You know, I really don't know what's going to happen next. And I'd say for this one, this is the first one that I feel very mixed about. There are things in it that I really liked, and there are things in it where it seems like there's just too many ideas, and they're not servicing all of them very well. But they're interesting ideas, they're good Star Trek ideas, and they're good moments within the episode, but it's kind of up and down for me. Yeah, I, I, I see your point, too, uh, and and with regards to, I remember I remember the Infinite Vulcan, because I remember when I said last time, oh, next up on Enterprise Incidents is the Infinite Vulcan, like I remembered what the episode was, whereas the episode we had just talked about, the Survivor, I felt like I was kind of right. seeing... I'm like, did, did I just see this episode for the very first time? Because I did not have any recollection of that one at all. So I, I did have a recollection of this one. But while I was watching it, uh, again, with this incredible eye that we have uh, really looked over all of Star Trek up to this point, I thought it once again was a very good episode. Not great, but good Again, grading it on a curve sure. because it is animated. It is 30 minutes. The animation is not great. We talked about this many times. But I, st uh, I still thought when it came to the story and the way that the characters were acting, this was once again a vintage Star Trek episode. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it is. The characters are in character. There are definite Star Trek ideas. There's just some oddness to some of the stuff. But that's And it's also like just to go to... Wait, you made a giant Spock? Right. <laughs> what? Like, why does he have to be a giant? Why That's is the other the... guy a giant? Why are the clones giants? That is a real weird one. <laughs> this episode. <laughs> it, it is. And, you know, if this was a live action episode, which it absolutely could have been, like, I think they could have gotten away without having to make the clones giants. I think making them giants is really dumb. Yeah. And I, I think it... <laughs> I think it's a weird thing. I, uh, overall, I think there are more pluses to the Infinite Vulcan than minuses. This is uh, the production number for this episode was 22002, which makes it the official second animated episode to go into production. But it was actually the seventh 
Star Trek animated series episode to air, which it did on October 20th, 1973, making it overall the 86th episode of Star Trek to be broadcast. Now, as we talked about before with the animated series, Walter Koenig was not invited to come back to reprise his role as Chekhov. He wanted to, and unlike Walter uh, George Takei and Michelle Nichols, who did come back after Leonard Nimoy went to bat for them. Apparently that bat was not big enough to also include Walter, and he was left out of the animated series. Do we know any more information about why that was? Uh, I have some information, and uh, that information is, starts with the fact that Walter Koenig wrote The Infinite Vulcan. And not only was he invited to write the episode because he was left out from having a presence as Chekhov, but this was the very first credit that Walter Koenig had writing anything, and he'd written other episodes of other shows, which I'll get into in a moment, but he was really the first, uh, you know, now we're at a point where with all the other Star Trek shows, starting with Next Generation and Jonathan Frakes going behind the camera and other actors writing and directing, Walter Koenig was the first Star Trek actor to write an episode of Star Trek. So uh, this happened, again, because he was not part of the series. And Koenig would later go on to write TV episodes for Land of the Lost, which was produced by David Gerald, Family, and the Powers of Matthew Starr. And Koenig was inspired for this story by a newspaper article that he read on cloning. This episode, like many episodes of the original series, were both timely and in some ways ahead of their time. And uh, while Walter was writing the story, he tried to write the character of Chekhov into the story and asked if he could do the voice. But once again, he was told there was no budget for that. So my question, Steve, is come on. Like, really, you couldn't just throw a little bit his way to include him and include Chekhov into the story? I don't... Well, this is what I'm asking is, like, why did they not want Chekhov? Like, it's it's totally bizarre. And with Nimoy going to bat for the other characters, I mean, you're talking about someone coming in for a day's work. They, you know, you could come in and probably record, with the number of lines these people get, mm. three episodes in a day's work. So it's like a hundred bucks. It's a, I mean, this is not a lot of money, and particular. And even if it's like, okay, well, you wrote this episode, so yeah, we'll let you come in into voice. I don't understand. It's like it, the only thing that it feels like to me is there. There must have been malice somewhere. So there was something. Uh, the, the official word is that oh, we just didn't have the money for you, Walter. Sorry, but I mean, there's got to be something beyond that. You're not talking about. Uh, like today, uh, bringing a character back for a feature film where it's going to cost you millions of dollars. No. I mean, it must have been what? What would have been what? A, hundred, a couple hundred bucks for him to bucks. voice the character of Chekhov? I mean, come on. It, it, it really just seems unfair. And it was a, a situation that understandably left a sour taste in Walter Kenny's mouth. But apparently, when it came to writing and rewriting the Infinite Vulcan, that was also a process, Steve, that Walter found uh, to be a, quote, unquote, hideous experience. As Walter says, 
I did about 10 drafts. It was just an unbearable process. Gene Roddenberry kept saying, let's use talking vegetables. This is animation. We could do anything. Let's do this. Let's do that. So I had to keep making adjustments to accommodate the medium in which we were working, and that wasn't very pleasant. However, Dorothy Fontana, who was a story editor and associate producer of the animated series, the legendary Walt, uh, Dorothy D.C. Fontana, she said, and I quote, Walter delivered well for a new TV writer. He introduced the idea of cloning and later the idea of a 50-foot-tall Spock. It was a fun idea, and he developed it well. Both Gene Roddenberry and I were delighted that we could give Walter an opportunity to work on the show. His intelligence and talent were noticed, and that was a good feeling. So not for nothing, and I don't know really anything about this at all, but that particular quote sounds very political. Does it does sound political? That sounds like, and this, and it's an interesting thing. Is like most of the time in politics, in business, and in the entertainment industry, there's the thing you're supposed to say, and then you say it. Like most of the time, you say, "Oh, it's so you know, I worked on this movie. The cast was so great. The crew was so great. We had so much fun together." That's not necessarily true. You know, that's what you're supposed to say. And Walter has always been, and I noticed this just over the years, especially when he would be on stage at conventions. You know, he he shoots from the hip. He says how he feels. He doesn't sugarcoat his feelings. Uh, and I mean, even just you know what I had read about uh, his his experience writing for the animated series, because when it was all over. Uh, they asked him to come back and write another episode of the animated series. But between his general hurt feeling about not being invited back as a cast member and just all the rewrites he had to do for an animated episode of Star Trek, he basically said, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. I totally get that. Yeah. I, I, you know, it doesn't feel like he was respected and taken care of the way he should. No, he wasn't. For yeah. sure he wasn't. Um. So you remember when we started doing the animated series and I was kind of going, you know, there wasn't that much going on this week. It wasn't a big, that is not the case now as we are in mid-October. October, October uh, 20th, 1973 is when it aired. Uh, so in the week of October 13th to October 20th, man, it is crazy. All the cool. things that are going on in the wow. world. Wow, let's hear it. Well, and the first thing, of course, is we're right in the middle of the Yom Kippur War. And so October 15th, and this is where... And everyone who looked at this war, just like Israel's totally outmatched, they're outmanned, they're outgunned, they're just, you know, Israel's a super tiny country, and they're like, they're in deep trouble. Well, this is where that tide really starts to turn. Because on the 15th, the Israeli army took control of the, of the West Bank of the Suez Canal. They captured 20,000 Egyptian officers and soldiers, and they are pushing very quickly towards Cairo. Wow. Yeah. On October 16th, uh, Henry Kissinger... Uh, who was the Secretary of State, and Le Duc Tho of North Vietnam were awarded the Nobel Prize for negotiating an end to the Vietnam War. And what's really interesting is Le Duc Tho refused the prize, saying, when guns are silenced and peace is really restored in South Vietnam, I will reconsider the acceptance of this prize. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kissinger said, yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> yeah. On October 17th, and of course this is related to the Yom Kippur War, OPEC imposed an embargo against countries helping Israel and stated they would cut oil production by 5% and an additional 5% every month thereafter until Israel withdraws from any territories it's occupying that's not theirs. So that's going on. 
there's also Watergate is going on. Oh, yeah. And Judge John J. Sirica ruled that the U.S. Justice Department special prosecutor Archibald Cox could have access to the Watergate tapes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. On the same day, Martin Cooper and John F. Mitchell uh, for Motorola filed the very first patent for the Dynatac, which is the world's first cellular phone. Well, so. there you go. That's where it started, huh? Yep, 1973. No kidding. I didn't realize it went back that far. Um, on October 18th, Abu Dhabi halts all oil exports to the United States. On the same day, and I didn't know about these guys, but they sound awfully scary, serial killers Willie Steelman and Douglas Gretzler commit the first of 17 murders over a 22-day period. I never even heard of that. I didn't either. They will, they'll be captured after killing nine people in a single household on November 7th, 1973. Wow. Really scary. Yeah. On October 19th, you know how uh, this judge ordered the Nixon administration to turn over the Watergate tapes? Mm -hmm. Nixon says no. Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> Same day, Libya halts all oil exports the, exports the United States. That's what I mean. There's so much going on. There's a lot going on. That for, for sure, that was a heavy week. And October 20th, 1973, is what has been come to be known as the Saturday Night Massacre. And the Saturday Night Massacre is that Nixon wants Archibald Cox, the special prosecutor who's supposed to get the Watergate tapes, fired. So he goes to his attorney general, Elliot Richardson, and says, fire that guy. They refuse, and he fires him, he fires his attorney general, and then he starts firing people down the list until he can find someone who will fire Archibald Cox. Does he find someone to do that? He does. It is Robert Bork who eventually is made an acting attorney general, and he files Archibald Cox, and he's the guy who was the Supreme Court nominee that was turned down in the 80s. I remember that name, Robert, Robert Bork. Bork. Yep. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And then... Saudi Arabia halts all oil exports to the United States. I mean, think about the pressure that's going on on President Nixon at this moment. We have oil prices. Oh, and they also doubled all the oil prices at this time. Uh, was this when we had like the big lines? This is the beginning of that of the. This is the beginning of that oil embargo that leads to all those big lines. So Nixon's dealing with that and all the the investigation into Watergate all at the same time. Uh, that that to me. Like I remember when that was happening. I just remember seeing the long lines at the gas stations. I remember, I remember Watergate. I remember like, uh, you know, the launch of Apollo seventeen. You know, like, like that. Those are my early sort of like formative memories of yeah. current events. Me too. Me too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in lighter news, yes, let's get some light news, please. Queen Elizabeth flies to Sydney, Australia, for the official opening of the Sydney Opera House. Oh, the Sydney Opera House. Sure. Yep. That's like the defining like look of tourist yeah. pictures going to Australia. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Shall we get into some infinite Vulcan? Let's do it. I got to say, it was very fun after the titles to see written by Walter Koenig. Very much so. Yeah. The star date of 5554.4, the captain's log, puts this episode... In the fifth, the fifth year of the, the five-year mission, in between, for the world is hollow and I have touched the sky, and is there, in truth, no beauty? Interesting. Um, what's very interesting, actually, because is there, in truth, no beauty, is when we introduce the Idic, right? Uh, exactly. Uh. And we talk about 
like like it, it was an instant in truth no beauty that we introduced the itic but in terms of like the actual acronym being pronounced in the way that it that it's come to be known mm. infinite diversity and infinite combinations that was said here in this way in this episode oh, for the very first time very interesting i remember you mentioning to me that some of the time Shatner was recording at Filmation in their sound place. And some of the time he was out on the road, maybe doing theater and recording in a closet or something. Why do you say that? Because the sound quality is different on him. Uh, Not only is the sound quality different, but his, his, uh, I would say his performance is not as inspired as it has been on some of the previous episodes of the animated series. So do we know if he recorded this? Uh, Alpha on location somewhere? Or? Well, what we do know is that this was one of the episodes, as are most of the ones to follow, that he was not, they were not all together. Right. Gotcha. And you can hear that. And also another hint of that is when it came to uh, the antagonist of this episode, Caniclius, mm-hmm. the cast members were pronouncing it in different ways because they were not all in the same room. Right. Some of them were pronouncing it Caniclius, some of them were pronouncing Caniculus. So if they were all in the same room, they would have been corrected. Yep. Yep. Um, And what we hear is that we're exploring what I know you love, a strange new world. I will say that the animated series, the ratio of episodes in which the Enterprise is actually on its mission to explore strange new worlds, was the ratio was greater in the animated series than it was in the original series. Yeah, I think it totally is. And we beam down to this planet, and Sulu says he's getting strange readings that he can't decipher, and Spock notices that there's some kind of power coming from a building, which is a pretty typical uh, start to Star Trek, and they walk off. Sulu's alone with his tricorder. He looks up at the sun. He looks down at this purple flower and says, Well, now, what's this? So first of all, this planet is on the uh, uh, periphery of the galaxy. So... You know, here we are, we're always seven episodes into the animated series, and we have gone to the edge of the galaxy quite a few times in the first episode of Beyond the Farthest Star and also in uh, One of Our Planets is Missing. So when Sulu looks down and he, and he sees this unusual plant that gets up, you mm-hmm. know, basically carries its root to another location, puts the root back in the grass and, like, sits back down again, he says, well, now, what have we here? I thought, wait a minute. Oh, my. (laughs) (laughs) What is it, Mr. Sulu? You're going to have to see this yourself, sir. So this is going to sound very strange, but I feel like one of the neat things in this episode is I feel Walter Koenig's love of George Takei. Absolutely, yes. You are completely right, because Sulu has a lot to do in this episode. If it's not going to be him as Chekhov, then he's going to throw the love to Sulu. Well, and he has a personality. I mean, first of all, we're dealing with botany, like which if you love Star Trek, you know that Sulu's into botany. But the other thing is, and this is just a writing thing. This is where I like Walter Koenig's writing. And maybe a lot of this got squeezed out because he was having to service so many things. But like there's so much of Star Trek that falls into each of the supporting characters will give a bit of expositional scientific and, you know, like. Captain, I'm getting a, something on this frequency. Or, Captain, the shields are failing. Or, Captain, the I've lost control of the helm. You know, that's just informational. And good writers 
will will bring personality into that. So we might be getting informational stuff, but we feel that the actor has some room to do stuff. And this whole early stuff with Sulu, I feel his personality, not just informational. For sure. In fact, I would say that just in this animated episode, Sulu had had, had more to do than he probably did in the third season of the original series, save for uh, That Which Survives, you know, because he was actually with Kirk and McCoy on that planet. And I'm so glad that you brought up Sulu noticing the plan because right. botany was one of his hobbies, and that was established in the very first Star Trek episode to air, which was The Man Trap. But I absolutely did notice that, oh, well, Walter Koenig is really really showing his love for George and for Sulu. Yeah. Well, and, and particularly this moment, because we talk about the fact that this is a plant, but it can get up and walk around and then rebury itself and be more like a plant again. But then this is the line where there's personality, which is Sulu says, It's a mobile plant. When it stops, its roots bore back into the ground. They're all over the place. I think it likes me. We always encourage our officers to make friends with the natives. Yes. That's fun character stuff, mm. not just expositional stuff, you know. And then Spock informs us that we're being stand. We pull out our our phasers and put them on stun, and we head away, leaving Sulu alone with the plant. He picks it up, and it, like, stings him. Oh. Just like you point out, it's a great typical Star Trek setup where something is coming from this building, and then Spock gets readings that we are being scanned. So far, this really feels like Star Trek. Sure. And we're inside this building. And we're talking about it's got a powerful force field and it's got defenses built in. And then we hear a scream from Sulu and we run back, back outside. He is out. Bones knows he's been poisoned, doesn't know what the poison is, and that he is going to die in a, a minute. minute. <laughs> yeah. And Bones is trying to figure out what to do when we hear... That won't be necessary. And they look up and there are a bunch of... Vegetables. Plants. Yes, yeah. uh, basically vegetables. Uh, uh, the the lead alien life form, his name is Agmar. Guess who voiced Agmar, Steve Morris? I don't have to guess. It's James Dewan. You are correct, sir. So, uh, so Agmar is one of this new alien race called the Thalosians, and they are a race of plants, vegetables, uh, what have you. But this was an area where Roddenberry especially thought this is animation, let's, let's kind of go for it a little bit. So they were able to have a, a life form that was not just like a humanoid type of, you know, biped. Well, th and this is where I go. There's like, you know, in the movie Amadeus, where the emperor played by Jeffrey Jones says, it's too many notes. Yeah. There's only so many notes that the human ear can hear. Now, that character is made to look ridiculous because he's talking about Mozart. But in fact, this is true. And this episode has too many notes. Like, I agree with you. Because it's like, okay, we want to make plant creatures. Fine. Well, explore that. Like, what, is that, what does it mean that they're plant creatures? And we don't. Like, is it, like, if they went, you know, like, if they were needed the sun, because, like, what does it mean to be a plant creature? If their personalities or their cultures were different because they were plant-based, if they had to touch the earth to pull nutrients from it, if they had... Like, but they don't explore the ideas at all. So it's like, oh, yeah, they're plant people. But it doesn't mean anything, you know? And he pulls out his tentacle, and McCoy says, uh, Just a minute. I can't let you, whatever you are, inject him with some alien 
dewdrop. <laughs> you know what I wrote down here, by the way, and it's a totally minor point. I was like, you know what? On this planet, McCoy, you're the alien. They're not right. aliens. Right. They're they're just doing what they would do. They're to save... the natives to this planet. Correct. It is an antidote quickly absorbed. He should begin to respond momentarily. Well, the plant that infected Sulu was called a retlaw plant. Okay. And what is retlaw spelled backwards? Uh, Walter. Correct. Uh, Why do you think uh, <laughs> the plant was called a retlaw plant? Because the writer of the episode was Walter, and he said, ah, why not? That's funny. How is it you knew your antidote would work on a human? There have been humanoid aliens here before. So that's a hint that there's some other kind of human there. which Someone else is there. Which I'm going to get back to because I don't understand exactly what this other human really is. I'm sorry, Agmar, but I don't like puzzles. Where are the rest of your people? Well, the way that Kirk actually says, I don't like puzzles, that made me think of, I don't like mysteries. Yeah. They give me a bellyache. I got a beauty right now. Another reference to the man trap. <laughs> right. I So the I don't like puzzles, where are the rest of your people? It doesn't really make sense because why would you assume that there's a lot more people? Like, you know, not, literally nothing about this culture at all. So it's not like, you know, if you just showed up at the L.A. Arboretum, and you saw a lot of plants and only a few people, you would like, where are all the other people? It's right. like, where is everybody? You're well, they're, of, just, they're just out there. They're out there. How yeah. do you know how many people <laughs> there's supposed to be around here? Sure, sure. But it doesn't matter. So we go inside this building. We see these huge plants lined up, which I guess are the 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 corpses of the old people that have died. Exactly. Right. That's what I thought, too. Nerve tissue. Mass density is exceptionally high. Readings indicate the beings used almost 70% of their brains. A very high ratio. How much do we use? All of it. We use we use all 100% of our yes. brains? This I is, thought it was like 10%. Yes. This is literally in all caps. I have written down myth. And I am now... This is this myth bugs me so much. Do you know where this comes from? This we only use Where does this come from? I had to look it up recently because it came up in some other thing I was doing. Is that it? it's totally not based in any science at all. Nothing. It is from, I believe... The introduction to like a self-help book in the 30s, where some guy just said, knowing we, you know, we need to get use of all of our brain, and that's very difficult because we only use 10% or so. And people just went, Oh yeah, I guess we only use 10%. And then it got just repeated everywhere, like this is the thing. We use all our brains all the time. Like most of our brains is like making your heart beat, and I'm moving my arm around now as I'm talking and I'm articulating these words, and you know, all of that stuff is happening all the time. My eyes are using tons of my brain all the time. Use all of your brain all the time. Now, when you're doing different tasks, different parts of your brain spark up and we're, are working harder than it, but you use all of it. <laughs> so it's like basically became like a print the legend totally scenario. Yeah, totally. Wow, I never knew that. You see, I always wow, they use 70% of their brain, they're a lot smarter than we are, but no, there you go. <laughs> no, we use all of it. So we hear that this was the generation before them, and then we hear that a human had showed up and he had some disease and it was killing all of them off, but this human also worked really hard to help save them. And then we see this dragon eagle thing with like tentacles. A swooper. Yeah. Call it a swooper, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. For a sp something that was a absolutely uh, something they were able to realize in an, a an animated episode that would have been really hard. Although, you know, these days it would have been pretty easy. <laughs> and then Kirk immediately pulls out his phaser to fire at them, which seems 
weird to me because it's like you're inside a building with the people who run the building. You don't generally just start shooting animals. You know, like if you came into my house and shot my cat, I would think that was kind of messed up, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, a cat, I'm allergic. Yeah. Beep. <laughs> um, so, but, hey, guess what? Again, phasers don't work. Right. So just like what we saw in, uh, like, Return of the Archons, you know, there's a there's there's something that uh, de- weapons deactivator. Yep. And we've seen it. We've already seen it at least once, maybe twice in the animated series that the phasers Exactly, work. yes. Not the first time we've seen this. And he tries to call the Enterprise, and these tentacles come down and grab him, start carrying him away, and all the guys get grabbed. What do you think they'll do with us, sir? Something tells me we've just been used as a diversionary tactic. Look. And we see that the swooper is flying away with Mr. Spock. So once again, after Spock's brain, Spock has been kidnapped for use of a greater cause. The master. Praise to the master. Praise. And then we see Dr. Stavos Caniclius 5. I am Dr. Stavos Caniclius 5. Welcome to Philos, Captain Kirk. And uh, Scott, tell me who is voicing this. Well, of course, it has to be James Doohan. I, I actually think this voice I like. I think it's more different. He tends to do this soft sort of voice for a lot of characters. And that was what Agmar was. But this booming big voice. Yeah, he's good at it. It's better, yeah. Actually, that soft voice that you just did made you sound a lot like Gene Roddenberry. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so Walter Koenig wanted to write Chekhov into the story and voice Chekhov, and he said they said no. Well, Koenig wanted to then provide the voice of Caniclius, and he had to audition. Like He actually went in, even after two years of playing Chekhov in the original series, he still went in to audition for the voice of Caniclius. And he said, I felt I was kind of screwed around because I asked if I could come in and read for the part of Caniclius. And they said, yeah, but it was really just lip service. I came in and I read and they had, they had no intention of hiring me. So that upset me. So no wonder on top of everything else, he did not want to come back and write another animated episode. I, something's going on. There's something, something's up here. Someone's got something against, uh, someone yeah. has it out for him. Yeah. Like, like Walter was flirting with some girl Roddenberry was also flirting with and that just irritated him. I don't know. Who I knows? totally made that up. That's not a fact. Don't, <laughs> yeah. don't make that a, like, use 10% of your brain yeah, thing that gets repeated yeah, yeah. from yeah. now on. Print I just made that up. <laughs> but it's something's up. Well, the thing too, I actually think Koenig would be better for Agmar. That would have been a better part for him. Sure. You know, I don't know what different voices he can do, mm. but like call, call in, letting the guy come into audition for the part he wrote when you're already not letting him play the part that he played on the show. Yeah, he got screwed around. That is just messed up. No question about it. Uh, and they hand Kirk his communicator, which I don't know how they got his communicator. I don't know. I don't remember. Did we him. miss something there? Yeah. Go back to your ship. Not without my first officer. I am sorry, Captain. You will leave now or suffer the consequences. And the swoopers show up, and Kirk calls up the Enterprise and says, Kirk to Enterprise. Beam us up, Scotty. Close to beam me up, Scotty, which even in the animated series, he never said. Pretty close, though. Close enough. (laughs) And that is the end of Act 1. 
we were back in Act Two on the bridge, and we get a you know a little update. We hear that Uhura is trying to figure out who this caniculus guy is. Agmar said something about a weapons deactivator. Mr. Sulu, lock ship's phasers on that laboratory building. Use a wide area stun setting. Aye, sir. And they open fire, and it doesn't work. So this is the second time that the ship's phasers were actually set on a stun setting. Steve Morris, can you recall the one episode of the original series where the ship's phasers were actually set on stun? Well, I think sometime when I was going to put the bag on you. They <laughs> want a piece of our action. Yes, it was a piece of the action. Um, which I like. I love that moment in a piece of the action. Yeah, that's great. They're just like looking out the window. Yep. And then the ships, you see the ship's phasers fired. All the gangsters fall to the ground. And uh, was it uh, Krakow uh, who says, oh, gee, that's some trick? Yeah. <laughs> it's a great scene. Which means our weapons are useless. And we have no alternative but to go back down there and try to rescue Spock without them. And Sulu says, and again, this is personality coming out rather than just exposition. I'd hate to resort to clubs and knives. There may be something more effective, Mr. Sulu. So we've got some kind of plan going on. Yeah, sure. We don't know what it is yet, yep. which is which is actually a good a good device I to totally, use for an animated absolutely. episode. Like Totally. Yep. Mm -hmm. McCoy comes on the bridge. And this is a very bizarre direction they took this which is he says one of my great great granddaddies way back had the finest garden in the south had to scramble around a little bit to find the materials but i've got his recipe brewing now now i figured out what he was talking about it's like oh i bet it's some sort of weed poison or something oh well you see i didn't know that, that i was, did not predict that um but i also go like really You've got all the science of this century, and you need to go back to scrounge together ingredients for your several hundred-year-old great-great-grandfather's weed, you know, poison? Sure. It seems sort of ridiculous. Uh, and then Uhura gives us some information about Caniculus and says, Stavos Caniculus, Earth scientist, period, eugenics wars, planned clone perfect specimen prototype into master race. Concept considered anti-humanistic, banned from community. That's actually tying this this episode, of The Infinite Vulcan, to Space Seed with the mention of the eugenics wars. So my question is, did Caniculus know Kandunian Singh? My so so I I'm assuming I mean obviously that's what it's connecting to. When they say they banned him from the community, is it that the community of genetically engineered humans like Khan banned him from their group or was he on the opposite side and got banned from somewhere else? See, that's a, that's a good question. I, I'm not sure which, it, which it is, but if his plan was to clone prototypes into the master race, into a master race, right. cloning, right. you know, eugenics is one thing cloning to create a master race. So that puts, uh, I would say, Caniculus, he's a cross between Khan, Dr. Roger Corby, mm -hmm. and Adolf Hitler. Wow. Well, except it's, he says, he doesn't talk about, I want to kill a whole bunch of people. Right, but he does talk about a master race. Right. right. He does talk about that. It's also confusing to me. They say this thing about a plant clone. So is the giant Caniculus a plant? Uh, no. Uh, I don't think well, so. Why are they talking about plants when they're talking about his cloning? Well, because when they clone Spock at the giant Spock, 
he's not a plan. No, I, it doesn't. That's what I mean. It's like there's they use that word, and I don't understand. This is where there's just a lot of stuff that I don't think they really explain. Right. You yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but the guys disappeared. No evidence of his death. And they then McCoy and Kirk talk about this modern Diogenes who's roaming the galaxy looking for a perfect specimen. And Kirk's heard of this too. It's a weird little digression. Couldn't be caniculus. He'd be over 250 years old. Not if he cloned a new copy of himself every so often to carry on the search. Remember, he said he was Caniculus 5. And why does Kirk know that? Because he's the observer. Sure. He picked that up. Yep. Yep. We head to the transporter room. We've got some kind of new devices. I hope these things work. Well, the equipment's guaranteed, but I have my doubts about the stuff inside. So the equipment is what Scotty and his engineers built, and the stuff inside... Is what McCoy came up with. Is what McCoy came up with. And then Kirk gives Scotty orders to move away for 30 minutes to get him out of range so maybe they, they'll think that we left. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Beam down to the planet. We walk into the building, and we see a bunch of rocket ships, and now we're speculating on what these rocket ships were for. A number of ships indicates a mass migration or invasion. Agmar said they were a peaceful people. Sure they are now, but what about before? You could have a point, Bones. Those ships, the city... The Philosians built a technology possibly greater than anything we animal species did. Which I think is a fun line. So I don't think this makes a lot of sense to me. What, that they support Caniculus after he basically almost killed off the entire species? Well, no, it's not just that. Yes, that's a weird one. <laughs> and it's also, so we meet them and they say, we're totally peaceful people. But then we're capturing Spock. Because he's going to be part of this master race because they bought into Caniculus's thing. But then we find out that the previous generation, before they got wiped out by Caniculus, were also about to go out and conquer the galaxy, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. So, And then we find out that the this new generation is also – it's just all very, like, confusing and they, – They've got a lot of ideas that they don't right. quite think through. Right. Like, really, who are they and what – and, and it goes to – this is why having them be giants and having them be plants and having, you know, this guy from the eugenics wars and having there be cloning. It's like we can't explore all of this stuff. And so it all sort of becomes kind like of it doesn't all it doesn't all fit. Right. Right. Well, and there's it's like a race of plants. Oh, super interesting. Cloning. Super interesting. Like for me and we're about to get to it. What do you, do you think is just a scientific idea? is the most interesting idea presented in this episode. We got plants that can move around. We got uh, the eugenics wars. We got giants. We got a race of people that are dying out. And we, we got, got cloning we got, Spock. Uh, and, and, and we have a race that is establishing itself as an interstellar peacekeeping force. Yes. Okay, now in terms of the interstellar peacekeeping force, that is not unique to this episode. Because if you go back to Aaron de Mercy. The Organians at the end have sort of established themselves as a as an interstellar peacekeeping force, at least with regards to keeping the peace between the Federation and the Klingons. Right. But then in I Mud, you know, the android race was going to basically take care of humanity and 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 enforce peace throughout the galaxy. But I think that this episode actually has the best, uh, the better, the better plan of those two uh, to go out into space and establish a peacekeeping force. 
So what is the best idea? Uh, I would say, really, I mean, the cloning aspect of it. Absolutely. For sure. In particular, cloning Spock. Yeah. Like, oh, my God, two Spocks. Not a giant Spock. Like, forget about that. That was just silly. That was silly, yeah. But, but like, that's an interesting idea of what does it mean to be in a different body? And are you the same person? And which Spock is the real Spock? And how do they, you know, all those things. We don't deal with any of that. Like, it really doesn't. And so it's like, to me, we're spending so all this time on all of these ideas, and that is all taking time away from the one thing I find interesting in the episode. You know, if this was an episode of The Next Generation, you can. I, I feel like that would have been the type of story, the cloning, like in the spirit of The Measure of a Man, where let's say Spock is cloned, and then you start to get into what are his rights as a clone. Exactly. That would have been a good story. Yes. yes I agree. Um, so uh, we find Agmar, and Kirk grabs him and says, We don't want to hurt you, but we must have Spock back. I do not think that is possible. The Vulcan human blend of wisdom, sense of order, durability, and strength is the finest the master has ever found. We are pleased Spock will carry on our work. Carry on your work? We are the last of a dying people, Captain. So they're all dying, these plants. And again, this is interesting. That's another, that's another interesting idea that we're not really exploring very much. But come, you are worried about your friend. I will show you he is safe and in good hands. They walk through this big, huge room. They push a button on some controller. They go down into an elevator. We end up in these tunnels. We fly around on this big platform. It all looks pretty cool. <laughs> and then we start hearing those flapping sounds, and the lights go out, and we're in the dark, and they say, use the belt lights, which I assume is from their force shield belts. That's right. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't work. And we hear the birds and now we're just on the run from the birds in the dark tunnel, which, again, I think is pretty cool. They keep running. They see the light in the distance, and then with really poor editing and storytelling that I don't think works at all, we suddenly are just standing around Spock in this weird golden thing. Right, right, sure. I don't know how we got there. I don't know why the lights turned on. I don't know. know. Well, they were running through the tunnel, and they saw the light at the end, literally saw the light at the end of the tunnel just ran towards that. My understanding is you're not supposed to go towards the light. Yeah, that's poltergeist. (laughs) Well, it's also when you're dying. You don't go <laughs> yeah. towards the light. He's dying. Something's happened to his brain. Electrical activity decreasing. Which to me, it's like at the beginning of the episode, we had Sulu who's dying and we couldn't do anything about it. Now we have Spock who's dying and we can't do anything about it, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. feels a little repetitive to me. But we hear... Behold, gentlemen, the dawning of a new era, the salvation of a galaxy, Spock 2. Spock. Spock to which we'll just refer to as Giant Spock. Giant Spock. So I I have no idea why there was a need for Caniclius and Spock two to be giant clones when they could have just been clones. But okay. Well, and maybe they just went. You know, it's Saturday morning cartoons. We want to have something that's fun. Yeah, but sure. If you're gonna have a giant, they should do giant stuff. They should pick people up or knock a hole in the wall or like have them do adventurous things that are fun with a giant. They they just, all Spock does is stand there. <laughs> yeah, right. He doesn't do anything. He does nothing uh, until, yeah. other than the Vulcan mind meld, he doesn't do anything. And it's like, wh- what was the point? And the, um, and I'll say too, this is just on a technical level. I cannot believe they didn't put reverb on their voices. 
Oh, yeah. Giant Spock and Little Spock, they sound exactly the same. Yeah, Kinnicleus should have had like the reverb Kinnicleus on it, too. It should have been booming. In it fact, should have been like Apollo from uh, Who Mourns for Outer Nice. In fact, I will, I will say this right now. In this episode of Enterprise Incidents, I'm going to put from this point forward, when you hear those voices, I will put reverb on them. Uh, really? Yes. You can do that? Sure. You can put the reverb on the voice. You, you, using the clips, you'll be able to put the reverb on that? Yes. The only the only disadvantage is I can't separate out the voices. So the whole clip, so background will also have reverb, which I can't fit. But yeah, the, the, the audio is pretty clean. Oh, this I is going to sound cool. I can't wait. This is going to, this is a really unique episode of Enterprise Incidents. By the way, do you know, and this is so today in your computer, I just have a little thing that says reverb and I can turn it up, turn it down, change the size of the room. I can do a lot of stuff on a computer. Do you know how they made reverb on old Hollywood stuff and music? No. You had a room. So when I went to film school, there was a reverb room. And what they do is it's basically a room that has a speaker and a microphone and a whole bunch of reflective surfaces like wood so that the sound comes out of the speaker and it bounces around and then goes into the microphone and you record that. And so there are very famous reverb rooms at big sound studios uh, around Hollywood and and around and in New York for music recording and all over, which like no no, if you want that particular sound of reverb, you have to go to that particular room because it was built architecturally. Oh, okay, sure. And so and there's a story and it's from this book, the Paul Simon book that I told you about. Sure. Uh -huh. When they sang the Lila Lies, I think it was for the boxer. Boxer. The sound engineer said, "What would happen if you went into the reverb room?" So Simon and Garfunkel, I think it's on that song, actually are standing inside one of these weird rooms with all these weird surfaces singing directly in the microphone. And that's how they get that huge Amazing. reverberant sound. Wait, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So we see Giant Spock there. There's a big music sting. And that is the end of Act Two. We come back and we get some action, which is the, the birds are flying at them. They put some cool masks on and they shoot out this, you know, gas We'll call it Great Granddaddy McCoy Gas. <laughs> uh, and the birds go down. Well, how about that? Great Granddaddy's weed spray still works. Never mind that. We've got to get Spock out of here before Caniculus returns. I think the lack of interest in the giant clone Spock is totally bizarre. What do you mean? I mean that Kirk isn't going, holy crap, there's a giant Spock. I've tried to talk to the giant Spock. You know, it's like it's just like, let's just get this other person out of here. I mean... I, you know, if this was done as a live action episode and there was a giant Spock, I think it would, I don't know how they would have pulled that off. Like for an animated episode, it works. But if this was actually a live action and they had Spock as a giant, I don't know. I <laughs> think that would have looked kind of cheesy. Of course, it would have looked cheesy. I mean, it, certainly in things like, you know, the Ray Harryhausen movies or oh, Gulliver's sure. Travels. Uh -huh. And I mean, they've done giants. In, in, in fantasy things of the 40s and 50s and 60s. They could have done it, but yeah, it probably would have looked cheesy. It's no use, Jim. He'll be dead in a few minutes. His mind is gone. What we find out is that his mind has actually been transferred to Giant Spock, but Giant Spock is still hasn't quite woken up yet, I guess is the way we would say it. Just as my predecessor transferred his knowledge to me through this apparatus, I have done that with Mr. Spock. And the first of his clones. And then Kirk goes into full Kirk speech mode. This moment is when I thought that is Star Trek. Because in the previous act, in act two, you hear Kirk actually say how he plans to be persuasive. Right. And now we are seeing him be persuasive. And this is the Captain Kirk 
that convinced Spock to maybe be the uh, uh, leader of a revolution at the end of Mirror Mirror, right. who inspired uh, the citizens of uh, Aminiar 7 to, to stop going into the uh, you know, disintegration chambers. Nobody's better in Star Trek history at being persuasive than James T. Kirk. You talk about creating life with your clones, but you have to murder to do it. And he's like cradling Spock at this point and says to the giant Spock, Out of my way, mister, that's an order. I don't think he understands. His mind is still trying to assimilate all the knowledge it's been fed. On the bridge of the Enterprise, Scotty has a plan to basically use all the ship's power to boost the communication, and Ahura says, Mr. Scott, you're risking a total drain of our dilithium crystals. To maintain communication, we would have to burn out all our reserves. And don't I know it, lass? But we must speak to the captain. So here we have Scotty in command for the first time in the animated series. Hmm. And the way that Scotty was in command... Not true. He was in command in the Lorelei incident when he was singing. Oh, oh, yeah. But he, he was in command, but he ish. wasn't all there. He yeah. wasn't quite there until Uhura said, yeah. step aside, I'm taking over. Good point. You are correct to point that out. But in terms of the Scotty that we saw in command in episodes like A Taste of Armageddon and Friday's Child and Metamorphosis, where Scotty was like, if you're going to have anybody in command and it's not Kirk or Spock, Scotty's the one you want in command. So this is really another point of an animated episode that made me feel like this feels like Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Giant Spock is starting to come out of it. And Kirk says, Spock, what is the logic in letting a man die for the sake of creating his duplicate? Explain it to me, sir. Explain it to me. And it might be penetrating a little bit. I think this is the most interesting part of the episode. I agree with you. Is that, and I, this is where I wish, like, I would have made this so much more of the episode of, like, actually, because all Spock does is stand around, giant Spock. Yeah, he doesn't really say much until if, now. If he was working with Caniculus, who said, you know, Spock... Let's prepare these ships to go out into the galaxy. And Spock was doing what he was told because he wasn't fully All Spock there. yet. Right. And then had to stop and then had to actively do other things to, you know what I mean? Like to see Spock emerging in his consciousness would have been really interesting. And it's really pared down to almost nothing here. It's pared down because, as you pointed out before, because of the limitations of a 24 minute animated episode. Well, and all the other stuff we're doing. Yeah. If we did, if they weren't plants, well, that would have saved us two minutes because we wouldn't be talking about the plants. Sure. You know, if they, there's so many things where it's like, if you just trim that out, then we could focus on what's important. I mean, it's so funny because particularly with network television, where it's specifically 24 minutes or 22 minutes and 30 seconds, time is a zero sum game. Every single thing that you add is time that's taken away from something else. That, that's why editing and, uh, you know, if you write a script, like you, like I, when I wrote a script for animation, the first script was 36 pages, and they're like, we really need this to be 27 pages, and that is the job. It's like, how do I get the most important things to fit in? It's not that the things in those other seven or eight pages sucked. Some of them you loved, you know? Well, it's like kill your kill it's your kill darlings. Your darlings. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you go, you know what? We can't do this plant thing. Vulcans do not condone the meaningless death of any beings. Now that's out of yesteryear. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Spock's death is meaningless if it is only to create a giant version of himself. It is not just a duplicate. He will be the beginning of a master race. I actually wish they hadn't used the term master race. Yeah, I do too. Because it's, again, this is like, 
because I don't think Caniculus is there's one plan which is look, I want to create some peacekeepers and bring peace. And there's this other thing of I want to create a master race. That's not the same thing. Not the same thing. Absolutely. And it obviously brings in all these area ideas like the Holocaust yep. that are heavy, you mm-hmm. know. And we get some static on the communicator. And then Kirk, I think this move is totally bizarre. He says, That's our ship calling Spock. You answer them. Yeah, he gives giant Spock his communicator. Which is like, no, you have one chance to talk to the ship and you're going to give it to the guy that's not entirely there. Uh, well, I will say that, that it works. It, it does work. And yeah. the other thing that works at this point of the Infinite Vulcan is that just like what you pointed out in so many of the better episodes of the original series, you have you are increasing the stakes by having more complications ensue. In other words, you have more than one problem at stake. And now you have two races against time because the real Spock is slipping away and the crystals are deteriorating aboard right. the Enterprise and there's a power drain. Right. So this is all happening at once. And again, this is another moment of an animated episode where I felt like this feels like Star Trek. Yep. Um, and finally, as we're draining our crystals down, Giant Spock says... Commander Spock here. And we get some information on Caniculus. There is a recurring theme in his later essays about using his master race as a peacekeeping force throughout the galaxy. That was why Caniculus wanted a perfect specimen. And Kirk says, all this has been a waste, Caniculus. There's been peace in the Federation for a hundred years. Has there? So first of all, a couple things to say about this. Hearing Kirk say, this has been a waste... The logic of waste, Mr. Spock. Sure. Brings you back to Mirror Mirror. Yes. Uh, as far as there being peace in the Federation for 100 years, so up to this point in canon and mythology of Star Trek, that's actually true. Because what we learn in Balance of Terror was that there was a war with the Romulans 100 years before that was audio only. There was no visual ship-to-ship communication. So that's why they didn't know what the Romulans looked like. So that was a hundred years ago. Um, But my question, the other answer that I have for you, Steve, is, well, Star Trek Discovery, there was a, which takes place nine years before the original series. So there's this war with the Klingons that was really bad. So Discovery just kind of, you know, doesn't really coincide with the canon established with the original show and now the animated series. But I mean, I'm okay with that. You know, I'm okay with bending the rules a little bit with canon as long as it's like for the good of the, for, for the good of the shows. Uh, but to answer your question, uh, yes, this, this does jive with what we've learned so far. See, I don't think it does. It depends on how we define our terms. It's like, yes, We've had peace with the Romulans theoretically for 100 years. Did the Enterprise just destroy a Romulan ship? Yeah, it did in Balance of Terror. Like, were they on the other side of the Romulan neutral zone in the Enterprise incident doing spy stuff? Totally. Have they had live fire fights with Klingons? Absolutely. Were they about to go to the war with Klingons? Totally were. Also, the 100 years of peace... I don't know. That's with the Romulans. I don't know what's been going on with the Klingons for the last... And I'm sure people know much more about Star Trek than me. But if there was just total peace in the galaxy, Star Trek, the original series, would have been a boring show. 
there's not total peace. There's war between Vendicar and, you know, like there's, they're not the only, the Federation isn't the whole galaxy. Okay, well, first of all, the, the, the whole reason the Enterprise went to Aminiar 7 and Vendicar in the first place was to establish diplomatic relations. Right. So, so Aminiar 7 was not a member of the Federation. In Balance of Terror, it's Spock was, when Spock is reading about the history of the Romulans, right. he says that there was a war 100 years ago. Totally. Okay, yeah. but as far as the, the, the conflicts, which you're talking about, yes, the Enterprise fired on the Klingons in, in an episode like A Line of Troyes, but there were battles, but not full-scale wars. There were incidents, like, you know, the Enterprise incidents, uh, yeah, but sure. they were not full-scale, I am declaring war on the Federation, I'm declaring war on the Klingons, like what we see in yesterday's Enterprise, where the Klingon, where the, where the, the Federation right. and the Klingons are at war, and the Federation is, like, actually losing that we don't see, right? We have not seen in a hundred years. Yeah, I, I, I just it's it, it's a stupid it's a stupid point I'm making, but it's it's actually like if the what happened in a private little war is a metaphor for Vietnam, that that kind of thing. No, those are wars going on. Sure. Like like the I what the, I, there's not an answer to this question, but I'm kind of curious if you have a a gut thought. If you were to say, okay, there's the whole galaxy, Milky Way galaxy. What percentage of it is the Federation? Oh, okay. Actually, all right. Well, I, I know I was going to answer this question because I remember when Next Generation was premiering back in 87, they, they had a percentage where they said that in Captain Kirk's time, this percentage of the galaxy had been mm. explored. And then by the time they get to the Next Generation 100 years later, this percentage of the galaxy have been explored, and I don't know what the numbers are, but but being explored and being a member of the Federation not is the not same the same thing. thing. Yeah, so they're often far out, we're way out beyond the Federation exploring but, but whatever. But when we when we discussed a private little war, and and I was the one who was saying, oh, it's an allegory for Vietnam, and you correctly corrected me when you pointed out that it wasn't that a private little war was about Vietnam. It was it was a, a statement about proxy wars right. that have been going on all this time up to this very day. And you are 100% right. So in the terms of of a proxy war where where you hear you have the Klingons interfering with uh, the, the planet in a private little war, which I think was Norrell, which is supposed to be neutral. Well, well done. Uh, and then you have Kirk establishing a balance of power. But does that make it a war in the sense of, uh, you know, like right now what's happening in Ukraine, if we're uh, helping and well, supplying arms to Ukraine, does that mean that we are at war with Russia? And the well, answer is no. Right. But it is a war. It is. I agree with you. Yeah. But well, in terms of an official declaration of war, that's what they're talking about. But the, I think this is this is a totally minor, dumb, <laughs> like nitpicky thing. But here's why. Here, here's why. In a weird way, I think it is slightly important. Is that the difference between the action-packed style and adventure and world of the original series and the more sanitized world of the early Next Generation is the difference between we are just humans trying to figure it all out just like humans on Earth today versus we have figured it all out. And this statement that Kirk is making, which I don't think accurately reflects what I saw his life was like in the original series, is we have we have peace. We have, we've got it all figured it out. Right. And I don't think that's true. You know, now that might be lying to this guy. But to say, like, you know, 
hey, there's no, I, I don't think there's any reason for a master race to take everything over, but I do, don't think that the Fed, and, and, the, and the reason I asked about how big a part of the galaxy is the Federation, well, the Klingons are still at war with people. They're still conquering planets. We don't know what the Romulans are doing. We haven't even met the Cardassians yet. They're probably conquering Bajor right now. So, like, the idea that the galaxy is all at peace is not true. Right. You know? Right. Well, listen, I, 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 I totally hear what you were saying uh, because it's a slippery slope to say that we're, we've been at peace for 100 years when there have been conflicts and there are the, the, the term peace is uh, not quite accurate because there have been battles. There have been... Uh, there has been bloodshed. There's been loss of life. There have been engagements in space and on planets. But in an official sense, they actually have been at peace. Like there have there there, there has no been there's there hasn't been a full scale war during this time since the 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 incident with the Romulans a hundred years before. It's actually this actually has become more interesting now because the, do you want to know? Do you know what? Or have a guess at what the last time the U.S. declared war is officially was in a war? Uh, was it uh, was it uh, two thousand three? Nope. World War Two. We didn't officially declare war in Iraq. Nope. Nope. Korea's a police action. We didn't declare war in Vietnam. Vietnam, uh, Vietnam I know, was a police action. Yep. Uh, it was a Vietnam conflict, nope. not a Vietnam war. Nope. Right. So technically, we haven't we haven't had war in eighty years. We've so been at so peace, because like Scott. right right okay. Good point. That is a very good point. <laughs> um, okay. But anyway, that. But anyway, like we digress. After, after that massive digression. We already have peace in the Federation. It wasn't imposed, it was agreed upon. You have no need of Spock. Reverse the effects of that machine and let us take him. And Caniculus refuses. And then Kirk turns to Giant Spock. It says If you have Spock's mind, you know the Vulcan symbol called the Idic. And Spock says, and I will add reverb to this. Infinite diversity in infinite combinations, symbolizing the elements that create truth and beauty. And like I mentioned, where we see the Idic for the first time in Is There Intrude No Beauty, actually referring to it by, by saying what the acronym actually is, that was the first time that was done in Star Trek. Nice. Could an army of Spocks impose peace and Philosian philosophy on any other beings in defiance of the Idic concept? I do not believe so. And Agmar is getting upset, and he runs and attacks Sulu, who throws him with a nice little hip throw. Yes. Sulu so getting, you know, some good action. Love, yeah. yeah. I would uh, say that, that this is another episode, like uh, one of our planets is missing, where everyone's got stuff to do. Yeah. Um, and Caniculus, for some reason, I totally don't understand, breaks the big case around Spock. I don't get why he does that. Oh, I don't know why he did that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. It doesn't yeah. make sense to me. Murderer! You've killed Spock! And giant Spock stops him. And I do like this line. To persist in this behavior, Captain, is to negate the eloquence of your previous argument. May I suggest a more constructive way? Then we see a big, giant, foreshortened finger come down to touch little Spock. It says, My mind, to your mind, my thoughts, to your thoughts. Giant Spock melds with dying Spock. Yes. And for some reason, dying Spock is now on the ground. I don't know why he's no longer on that bed after Caniculus broke the thing. Sure, right. Don't know. Um, small stock, Spock, without opening his eyes, says... 
I am pleasantly surprised at your capacity for deductive reasoning, Captain. When you are not being bellicose, there appears to be no end to your arsenal of formidable talents. So here you have Spock giving Kirk a backhanded compliment, yep. which made me think of the changeling. Yep, same thought. Right? Same thought. Right? Yeah. He goes, didn't think I had it in me, did you, Spock? And he goes, no, sir. <laughs> and you needn't worry, Captain Kirk, about a master race. There will be no militia, no other Spocks. And Caniculus is bummed because he can't go conquer the galaxy, I guess. I would suggest Dr. Caniculus remain on Phylos with my duplicate. The concerted efforts of both scientists may yet achieve a rebirth of the Philosian civilization and enable them to contribute to the Federation. Okay, so, so the episode takes another turn yeah. into what's my purpose. So his purpose to clone and, and whatever, take over the galaxy and with this, with this master race, now that that's been taken away, he's like, what is my purpose? And that made me think of the time that Kirk and Spock were asking themselves those very, that very same question. What is my purpose if there is no prospect of war with the Klingons? And that was the question they asked themselves at that key moment in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered right. Country. So people can be very frightened of change. But I thought it was very interesting how this animated episode sort of foreshadowed the the prospect of of purpose, which is something that we just saw in the survivor. Like, what's my purpose? Right. Yeah. I think, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna harp on this issue, screenwriting issue of show don't tell. You know, at the end of one of our planets is missing, which I don't think is fantastic. But in order to convince this huge giant cloud creature not to destroy all the little creatures, is they mind meld with them and they show images of humans. Right. And that's how this creature figures it out. Right. Like if you think about the end of Devil in the Dark, there's so much back and forth between the Horda and the humans for them to slowly learn to trust each other. Right. You know, in this case, they just told Caniculus, hey, by the way, we've had peace of the galaxy. And he goes, oh, okay. Right, right. You know, that's not a, it's not a dramatic moment because it's not shown. It's just... It's just Kirk being persuasive. It's just, And it's not even the best of speeches, you know. As right. right. There's no... It's, it, we're not going to kill today moment. Yeah. <laughs> but I do like that after little Spock makes his suggestion, giant Spock says... My thoughts exactly, Mr. Spock. So one might assume, Mr. Spock. That's kind of fun having them talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Kirk says the line... To bring life is at least as important as bringing peace... And that made me think of when Kirk says to Savick, how we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life. Totally. Very similar rhythmic line. Right, right. And, the, and yeah. his enunciation of the dialogue. So I certainly did not expect to be watching the Infinite Vulcan and tie, right. tie this episode into things that we will see in the future in both Star Trek II and Star Trek VI. And once again, like in a whole bunch of episodes... Kirk is going to let the bad guy go. Yeah. You know, that was a big, that was a big risk. I mean, you know, this guy was ready to take over the galaxy with a master race and clone people. And he's like saying, Oh, Spock will stay behind with you. And, and you know, you guys will be all right. <laughs> um, and he says, you know, I'll tell the Federation. They'll understand. I think what, I think that Kirk's comeuppance, which we never quite go into detail on, but, Actually, the Federation didn't understand, you know? Yeah, right. For Kirk was a guy that they're like, you know, we're kind of glad to knock this guy down a little bit later sure, on. Sure, sure. Um, I like that Giant Spock and Little Spock give each other the Vulcan salute. And can I ask you? Yes. So here you have two Spocks giving each other the Vulcan salute. 
Yeah. When will that happen again? Uh, Star Trek 2009? Steve, you are the friggin' man. I swear to God, this is what you makes you like the perfect partner <laughs> in Enterprise Incidents. I literally have it written down. It says, the two Spocks give each other the Vulcan salute. We will not see two Spocks give each other the Vulcan salute again until the end of Star Trek 2009. Bravo right. to you, my good man. Bravo to you. Um, and then we get our little joke at the end, which... Hit me in a weird way when I first heard it, but in thinking about it, I'm actually kind of, I think I kind of like it. Oh, by the way, Mr. Sulu, any chance of teaching me that body throw could come in handy sometime. And again, Kana giving to Kay like a, a fun little beat. I don't know, sir. It isn't just physical, you know. You have to be inscrutable. Inscrutable? Sulu, you're the most scrutable man I know. And then Sulu breaks the fourth wall. Breaks the fourth wall. Looks at the camera and winks. So how cool that check out, uh, well, Walter Koenig's episode that he wrote, that it stuck the landing with a nice moment with Sulu. I, I, so the Sulu stuff is my favorite stuff in this whole episode. The inscrutable joke is a weird one because it is, that is what Asians were, Asians or what they would have said, Orientals oh, 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 were called. Okay. That's what the joke is. Right. Is you're an you're an inscrutable Asian, you know, because an inscrutable means it's impossible to understand you. And so it's playing off of this odd sort of racial trope, but in a way that I think is exploding it, you know, because Sulu's so cool. Right. And even Kirk's joke of like, you're the most scrutable man I know. And I don't think anyone actually ever uses the word scrutable. It's only inscrutable. Right, right. You know, it's, I think it is, it was a moment where I was like, well, that's a little odd. But then I finally went, you know what? I kind of like it. I, I kind of like it. Well, this, this episode, as it concludes, this was two years before scientist J. Derek Bromhall's successful cloning of a mammalian embryo. Mm. And it was 20 years later that a sheep we get the dolly. Yeah. So I think, like, all things considered, the Infinite Vulcan, if nothing else, was ahead of its time because of just talking about cloning and, and, and an animated Saturday morning cartoon. I mean, I thought that was... Well, and again, this is your, your uh, grading on a curve versus mine, right. which is, to me, it's like, yeah, but what did you do with it? You know? Like, right. yes, you talked about cloning, but you didn't really... I'm really interested in Spock and giant Spock and like, what does that mean? And there's, there's much more things later on in next generation in other places or in the episode of the cinephiles that I was going to mention later on in our wrap up that deals much more successfully with the idea of artificial humans. Sure. Uh, oh, well, yeah, I think I know where you're going with that. Uh, you do. Uh, but, <laughs> but I do think, you know, again, the grading on a curve aspect of it, despite the shortcomings of the brief running time and having to get through things in a way that not everything is followed through, fully explored or fully realized, but... I still was pleasantly surprised for the seventh time in a row by an animated episode that holds up ex ex very, very well, given the circumstances, and really feels like a vintage Star Trek episode. There are a lot of, of moments, there are a lot of character developments that happen here that feel very, very true to what was established in the original series. And despite the... Uh, uh, maybe unpleasant experience Walter Koenig had writing it and otherwise being left out of the animated series. Uh, he later said, 
it was kind of neat to ultimately see it, knowing that rewrites, rewrites notwithstanding, it was still my words and my story. I thought it was okay. In the years that followed, I heard everything from, oh, that was the worst episode of the show, to that was one of the best. So I have no idea really where it stands. I thought it was an interesting take and certainly a little different. So my thoughts are pretty, I feel like I've given most of them. What I'll say is, you know, for me, the animated series has yet to strike out and it continues to deliver base hits, you know, and I think this is a single, you know, we're on base, almost got thrown out at first, but we're there, you know, and I enjoyed it. And the thing that I enjoyed the most was those little human moments with Sulu. That's my feeling. Uh, I, I feel like this is more like a double for me. Again, grading it on a curve by right. animated st- animated episode standards. It's a solid episode, a good episode, a lot of suspense, provocative, ahead of its time, revisits some of the original series themes, making it feel like Star Trek, including the classic Star Trek theme of giving the antagonist noble intentions like that of Dr. Roger Corby in What a Little Girl is Made of. A lot of great stuff for Sulu and Uhura and Scotty. Uh, This feels like Star Trek to me. And you're right. We're seven for seven so far with the animated series. So that's what we think of the Infinite Vulcan. Of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Maybe I'd be interested to hear what are the most interesting science fiction ideas that you think come up in this episode. Uh, You can visit us on our Facebook page. That's where the most conversations are happening. You can also follow us on Twitter at Enterprise Incidents on Instagram. You can subscribe to the show at all the places. But if you're on Apple Podcasts and you haven't left a review yet, we really do need those reviews. They're very important. If you want to support the show, you could do it through Anchor. And it's right at the top of the show notes. Think of it as a tip jar. You can spend as little as 99 cents a month to help support Enterprise Incidents. And if you want to be more generous, $9.99 a month is also available. And you can reach me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And as mentioned before, I was thinking about Cinephiles episodes that relate to this. One of them was our very, very early episode on Young Frankenstein, which of course is creating new life. And then also, Scott knows exactly the other episode I was talking about. Scott, what is the other episode I was thinking of? It's the first time that I uh, really had a great conversation uh, on the record about Blade Runner. Yep, Blade Runner, one of the great sci-fi movies of all time. And Scott was very kind to join us for that conversation. That is one of the great cinephiles episodes of all time. I agree. Was our conversation on Blade Runner. That was one for the books. I just want to second what Steve said, uh, how important it is. If you have not yet written a review for Enterprise Incidents on Apple Podcasts, please Right now, since we are at the end of our podcast episode and there's nothing left to listen to after this moment anyway, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. We really appreciate it. And also, again, uh, like Steve mentioned, any kind of generous donation you can make for Scott and Steve on Enterprise Incidents through the link on Anchor would be very, 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 very much appreciated. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance. Coming up next on Enterprise Incidents is an episode of the animated series that I've always loved because it is, as far as I can recall, the first episode of the animated series that I ever saw. Mm. And it is an episode that does lean into 
some of the themes that we have always explored on Star Trek. And it is also an episode that we will find that we're exploring a theme in one of the later movies of Star Trek. So please join us next time on Enterprise Incidents for The Magics of Magus 2. Until then, you know the words, keep going boldly.